Well, last week we completed our study in the book of Lamentations, and as I told you, the next book I'd like to go through with you is Second Peter, but I didn't want to do that this morning, or start that this morning, because next Sunday I want to provide a corporate launch for our, our summer equipping, or our summer super study on the seven churches of Revelation. So I was a bit uh, perplexed as to what to preach this morning, kind of a gap Sunday, if you will. But I was thinking about the last two sentences of Lamentations, chapter 5. They were still lingering in my mind, where Jeremiah said, if you remember, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored, renew our days as of old. And then the strange way to end this book, he says, unless... You have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. And I mentioned that this was Jeremiah's way of not being presumptuous, knowing that he or the na- nor the nation of Judah could demand anything from the Lord or expect anything from the Lord, but they really were just casting themselves on the mercy of God, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. And I was thinking if there was anybody who's talked about in the Bible who could have wondered if he had been utterly utterly rejected by his father or whether his dad was exceedingly angry with him and would refuse to restore him, it was the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. And he essentially cast himself on the mercy of his father. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 15, which is considered by many Bible scholars to be the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. J.C. Ryle, uh, the Anglican uh, bishop who ministered in Liverpool, England in the 1800s, said this, Quote, there's probably no chapter of the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. And here we find the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, which some would argue is the greatest story ever told, period. And it's the parable of the prodigal son, which is really a microcosm of the Bible. It's a, it's a miniature version of the entire story of the Bible. You say, well, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it's, it's God's plan of redemption of lost sinners. From Genesis to, to Revelation, we see God seeking and saving lost sinners through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And this parable, unforgettably, illustrates a, a number of key truths related to the doctrine of redemption or the doctrine of salvation. We see the lostness of man in sin. We see the repentance of a sinner. We see the forgiveness of God. And we see the joy of salvation, not just for the repentant uh, believer, but also God and all the heavenly hosts. But I think the greatest truth this story illustrates is the unbelievable love of God for the lost. And this parable, along with the two that immediately precede it, the lost sheep and the lost coin, form a magnificent portrait of the heart of God for sinners. Let me just remind you of the two previous 
parables. Verse 3, so he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he tells a second parable, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is... um, sort of a trilogy, I guess you could say. The way I like to view it is that Luke was acting like a play director who creatively directs a three-act play that beautifully and and vividly portrays God's incredible love for sinners. Act one is set in green pastures on a hillside, and the characters are a shepherd and a lost sheep. Act two is set in a humble house in a village, and the characters are a woman and a lost coin. And then act three is set in a wealthy home in the country, and the characters are a father and his two sons. And act three is the climax, the crescendo. It's it's what we came to watch. It's what we came to see. You know, the the, the guys that do the... Um, you know, the open for the band that you went to buy tickets for, you wanted to go see it, these guys in concert, well, they always have one or two guys that open for them, and you're like, yeah, whatever, get, let's get on to, the, to the, the main attraction, the main event. Well, Act 3, the parable of the prodigal son, verses 11 through 32, that is the main event. That is the premier show. And before we look at it, I think we need to go back to the very beginning of this chapter because there we find the key to understanding the profound lesson that Jesus intended us to learn from this series of of, of simple everyday stories and particularly this last one that we're going to look at this morning. Again, context is everything. Notice verse 1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. You see what's going on there? The tax gatherers and Sinners were were flocking to Jesus to hear his message of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And many many of them were repenting of their sin and committing their lives to to faith in Christ. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were were watching all of this from a distance and criticizing Jesus for hanging out with this riffraff of society, these people that they hated and they assumed God hated and wanted to destroy In fact, we see this attitude fleshed out in Luke 5. Turn back just a few pages. Luke Luke 5, we see the salvation of, of Levi or Matthew. 
the tax collector, one of the 12 disciples, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So in other words, Levi was saved. He was born again. He repented and he turned to follow Christ. Notice the very first thing he did when he got saved is he wanted to introduce all of his friends to Jesus so that they could get saved. Verse 29, and Levi gave a big reception for him, had a Jesus party at his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so back in Luke 15, I think Jesus told this parable not only to reveal God's heart for lost people, but to rebuke the Pharisees' heart for lost people. He was contrasting a, a right heart attitude and a wrong heart attitude. The, the Pharisees were indifferent to lost people, whereas God took initiative to save lost people. And while the Pharisees were grumbling and complaining, God and the angels were rejoicing. And don't miss the connection here that Jesus made between verses 1 and 2, two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. And then notice verse 11, he introduces this parable and he said, a man had two sons. In other words, this story is not just about a son who ran away from home and squandered his father's inheritance and wild living and then came back home. That's only half the story. And yet that's the part of the story that's usually emphasized to the point where the second son is really forgotten about. But the older brother in this story is one of the main characters and he plays a major role in the overall lesson of this story. And so the story is not about one lost son, but about two lost sons. And that's why I decided to title today's sermon, The Prodigal Sons. That's not a typo. That was intentional. So let's look at the prodigal son first of all. He represents the tax gatherers and the sinners. Verse 11. And a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided himself between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. So Jesus described a young man, likely a teenager, who was chafing under his father's authority. He was sick and tired of living according to his, the, the, all the strict rules and regulations of his dad, and he couldn't wait for that day when he could move out of the house. And so he thought the answer to all of his problems was to be out on his own, where he was free to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with whoever he wanted. And so he got impatient 
with that whole process. And so he made this unbelievable request. He had the audacity to tell his dad that he wanted his share of the inheritance now. In other words, Dad, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I just can't wait any longer. I'm out of here. Give me what belongs to me. Well, according to Jewish law, a third of what his dad had did belong to him. The, the son was entitled to a third of his father's estate. His older brother got two-thirds. Uh, but this was only to be divided after the father died. And so this son's request was tantamount to saying that he wished his dad was dead. Dad, I, I just can't wait for you to die. Let's just, let's just get this over with. And so this was not only a very selfish, arrogant request, it was also extremely ungrateful and disrespectful to the father. This was an insult. This was like a slap in his face. And the father would have been totally in the right if he said, why, you ungrateful, selfish, good-for-nothing kid, you're not getting anything with an attitude like that. But that's not how the father responded. Instead, he was very gracious and generous to his rebellious son, and he gave him what he asked for. And please don't interpret that as, well, you know, this dad was permissive. And he enabled his son. I heard somebody preach a whole message on the story of the prodigal son, and it was all about being a permissive parent who enables your kids. I'm like, how did you get that out of that story? That's not even the point of the story. It's about the father and his graciousness and his mercy. Luke 6, verse 35 Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And so not long after this self-absorbed, rebellious kid packed his bags and moved out, and went as far away from his father as he could get. And it says that he squandered his estate with loose living, the end of verse 13. He lived wildly, he lived wastefully, and ended up blowing his entire inheritance. He probably went out and brought that brand new turbocharged chariot, or the trendiest robes and the hottest new sandals. He ate at the most expensive restaurants, stayed at the most luxurious inns. I mean, he was living it up. He was having the time of his life until he came upon hard times and realized what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable, but it's passing. It's fleeting. And that pleasure soon gives way to pain. He also found out that the scriptures are true when they say in Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. It also says in that same chapter, verse 21, Proverbs 13, 21, adversity pursues the sinner. 
This is exactly what the prodigal son found out, and, and sadly, he had to find it out the hard way. Look at verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine reading, and no one was giving anything to him. So God, in his sweet providence, allowed a famine to occur in the very country the guy was in at the very time when he had used up all of his money. And so things were really bad for this guy. He was out of money. He was out of work. He was out of a job. He was out of food. But he was finally able to convince someone who lived in that country to give him a job feeding his pigs which would have been the most degrading occupation imaginable for a Jew. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than this. From childhood, every Jew was taught that pigs are unclean. The law said, cursed is the one who raises pigs. So Jews normally had absolutely nothing to do with pigs. But this guy sung so low, he was not only taking care of pigs, but he was contemplating eating with the pigs which he never actually did. He never had to taste the pig slop. It says he was longing to eat it, but no one would give him anything. I mean, you you know you're in bad shape when pigs are better cared for than you are. And I think this is a picture of the helplessness of a sinner who has strayed from God. The only thing stronger than this guy's hunger pangs were his pangs of guilt. When he had left home, initially things seemed to be going great, but then his life started to slowly spiral downward until he finally hit rock bottom. And that's, look at verse 17, when he came to his senses. Sometimes that's what it takes for someone to come to their senses. They, they have to end up in the pig pen of life before they wake up and realize they need to get right with God. Sin is like a psychosis. It, it, it keeps us from thinking clearly and, and rationally and sanely. But difficult circumstances have a way of snapping us out of that, that groggy, insane state of mind so we can see what sin is actually doing to us. You say, what does it mean to come to your senses? Well, it means you stop and consider what you're doing and where you're headed. See, when the party's going on, you don't have time to stop and think. You're just having a good time. But then when the music stops and the keg runs dry and your friends all go home and your lover walks out and you're left all alone with nothing but the echo of your own thoughts ringing in your head, that's usually when you realize it doesn't make sense to be living the way you're living. And so for the first time in this guy's life, he saw things for what they really were. Finally, everything made sense and he realized what he had done and what, more importantly, what he needed to do. Notice verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, 
how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. I think this is a beautiful description of of repentance. What does it look like to turn away from your sin and and turn back to God? Well, it involves realizing a few things. Number one, he realized his foolishness. His foolishness. He said, how many of my fathers hired have more than enough food, but I'm dying here with hunger. This is so ridiculous. It's so dumb. It's so foolish. And so the first mark of genuine repentance is recognizing the the foolishness of running away from God and not honoring him, not giving him thanks, living for yourself. Romans 1.21 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. So you must acknowledge you're a fool. You've been a fool. Number two he recognized his, his sinfulness. He recognized his sinfulness. Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have what? Sinned against heaven and in your sight. And so here's the second mark of genuine repentance is, is recognizing our sinfulness, not just towards other people, but ultimately towards God. That's what David acknowledged in Psalm 51, verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Thirdly, he recognized his unworthiness. Look at verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Make me as one of your hired men. So a third mark of true, genuine repentance is recognizing our unworthiness to associate with a holy and awesome God. It's like when Peter um, saw Jesus perform that miracle and catch all those fish in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. It says, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He felt completely unworthy. And how different this young man is now. Just a few verses later, or or earlier, he was demanding his right to his inheritance as a son. But now he considered himself unworthy to be called a son. He He was willing to work for his father just for room and board. I'll be your slave. Well, as is true of biblical repentance, it's not enough just to think these things. You need to act on them. Notice verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. He wisely and humbly returned to his father with the purpose of sincerely and completely confessing his sin to him and seeking his forgiveness and and, and submitting to his father as his slave. Again, like Jeremiah, he he knew he had no right to demand or expect anything from his father. I think this is a beautiful 
description of what repentance looks like. This, this, is a, this is a powerful picture of a person becoming a Christian. They confess their sin to God. They seek his forgiveness, and they submit to him as a slave. Now let's see what God is like when a person repents and returns home to him. They find that he's been watching and waiting the entire time. Notice again verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And I think what's implied in that is that the father was looking off on the horizon. And perhaps that was a a, a daily thing that he would go out during his times of prayer and he would go out and he would look on the horizon longing for the return of his son and praying, God, please, perhaps today you will grant him repentance and he'll come home. And so he saw him and felt compassion for him. Notice he didn't, doesn't say he felt angry towards him. He didn't feel disgust toward him. He felt compassion for him. Tears welled up in his eyes perhaps when he saw his broken and disheveled son staggering down the road, clothes all tattered and and torn. And then he did something shocking. It says, and he ran and embraced and kissed him. In other words, he didn't wait for his son to get to him. He ran out to meet his son. And in that culture, it was considered undignified and shameful even for an older man to run in public. But this father didn't care about that proper decorum. He couldn't wait to embrace his son and kiss his son. And the words there uh, are, are in the original language where he kept hugging and he kept kissing him repeatedly. And then notice verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so here is this wayward son beginning to recite his repentance speech, which he probably rehearsed over and over again all the way back home, but his father wouldn't let him finish. He just interrupts him. Which shows God's eagerness to Forgive us when we truly repent. And rather than rebuking his son, he gave him the royal treatment. Notice verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. So he says, bring out the robe. This is the best robe. This is a a sign of honor. Give him the ring, which was a sign of authority, his sonship. Um, The the sandals represented the fact that he was not going to be a slave. Slaves went barefoot. He was going to wear sandals like a free man. And then the fatted calf is, of course, that one animal saved for that extra special occasion. And so the father was just so thrilled, so overwhelmed with joy that his son had come back and he was still alive. He wasn't sure if he's ever going to see him again. 
So he treats them lavishly like royalty. And again, I think this is just a picture of the lavishness of the blessings that we receive when we get saved and become children of God. Everything he did here was a picture of complete forgiveness and, uh, and, and total restoration. Which is the same response that God has towards anyone who repents of their sin and returns to him. Even today, I think God is eagerly watching and waiting to see if anyone here comes back to him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The point is, if you realize that you have gone astray, like all of us have, admit your foolishness, admit your sinfulness, and admit your unworthiness. And make a complete and thorough confession to God. And when you do, he will respond, like Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Well, that's a great story. We love that story. But that's not the whole story. That's only half the story. And I think up until this point, the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening to the story, Jesus was telling this story in their presence. He wanted them to hear this story. They considered this a shameful story. A preposterous story, an inconceivable, ridiculous, outrageous, even scandalous story. They couldn't begin to get their minds around this story because they had no concept of grace and mercy. Enter the second son. And he's the first guy that the Pharisees can relate to. They get this guy. Because this guy is them. They are this guy. They're the critical son. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So here's the, the older son coming home from work, and he's had a long day at the office and heard a party going on, or probably out in the field is more like it, right? Had a long day out in the field, and he, he hears a party going on, the band's playing, and people are dancing on the front lawn, and he sees one of the servants scurrying by, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And he says, man, your little brother's home. Your dad is so happy, he decided to throw him a, a, a party in, in, in his honor. He even killed old Bessie. You better hurry up if you want some. And so we'd assume that the older brother would be excited too. He'd be happy and relieved that his brother was safe and sound at home. But what's sad is that he didn't share his father's joy in the repentance of his brother. Notice verse 28, 
but he became what? Angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours and you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, can't even bring himself to call him his brother, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I mean, he was boiling hot. And just like the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening to this story, to the first half of the story, right? He refused to go in. He stayed outside and had a pity party. But the dad came out and pleaded with him to, to come in. And that's when he exploded. And all the resentment and all the bitterness that he'd been holding on towards his brother um, and his, even his father came spewing out. I mean, I've, I've served you faithfully for all these years. I've never once done anything to shame you or to grieve you, and yet you've never given me a, a goat to par- have a party with my friends. But your other son goes off and blows his inheritance by sleeping around. And he comes home and you kill the fatted cow. This is an outrage. I can't believe you did this. Verse 31, and he said to him, the father said, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Someone pointed out to me in the first service that it says in verse 12 that he divided his wealth between them. So he actually said, okay, fine. If you're going to get yours, I'm going to give your brothers his. So this brother had two-thirds of his inheritance in his, in, in his pocket. But we had to celebrate, verse 32, and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And so the father continues to graciously plead with him to come inside and welcome his brother back, join in the celebration. But we learn a lot about this second son from his reaction to his brother's return and by what the father says to him. It's obvious that he was extremely self-righteous. He saw himself as the perfect son. He was proud of his loyalties to his father. And yet you kind of sense a bit of jealousy towards his younger brother. He would have been, you know, he would have been enjoyed being out there with his brother. But he stayed home and he faithfully served his father. Although it was obvious he didn't do this out of love and, and gratitude. He did it out of obligation, out of duty. He viewed it as, as slavery. He didn't, he didn't truly experience the blessing and the, the privilege of being his father's son. And this is so ironic because he's the one who actually had the mindset of being one of his father's slaves. It wasn't the younger one coming back saying, hey, I'll be one of your slaves, dad. I'm good with that. It's all I ask. This guy was his father's slave. 
Again, the younger brother represents the tax gatherers and the sinners. The older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. And this was their attitude toward their relationship with God and their attitude toward sinners. They, they didn't rejoice when sinners came to Christ and repented. They were critical. They were cynical. They were self-righteous. They viewed themselves as the model of spirituality. They were, they were proud of the fact that they kept all the rules and all the, the regulations, and they never strayed or acted sinfully, but their religion was slavery. They didn't serve God out of love and gratitude, but out of duty, out of drudgery. It was just, it was just a legalistic religion. And I think this describes a lot of Christians, or maybe so-called Christians, who self-righteously look down their noses at lost people, and they secretly gloat when they get what's coming to them. They rejoice in the fact that they're going to get there someday. They're going to get punished someday. No compassion. The point is this. The older son was just as lost as the younger son. The younger son was lost in a foreign country, and the older son, he was lost in his own backyard. Both of them had wandered away from God. While one was breaking all the laws, the other was keeping every one of them to the letter. The only difference between these two sons was one rebelled externally while the other rebelled internally. One committed detestable sins while the other committed respectable sins. And yet the father graciously came out of the house and met them both where they were at. He greeted one and restored him, and he pleaded with the other to repent. Do you see yourself in this story anywhere? All of us are one of these two sons. Either we were or we still are. Lost in a foreign country. Maybe you're that pagan that everybody knows is a pagan. You're a notorious sinner. You know it. Everyone else knows it. Or you may be that self-righteous goody two-shoes. Living a moral life. You look respectable on the outside, but your heart is far, far away from God. You might have even sang some of those songs that we sang earlier. Isn't that what Jesus said? That they praise me with my lips. They praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Some of you that have been coming to church all your life are just as lost as someone who just walked in here the very first time this morning. The good news is God loves you either way. And so whether you're like the younger brother or the older brother, God is watching. God is wanting. He's waiting. He's pleading with you to repent and to return to him. 
have you ever wondered what the young older brother did? Kind of an anticlimactic ending here. Kind of leaves you hanging. Because Jesus never tells us what happened to the older brother. I mean, how did he respond? Did he, did he come in? Did he stay outside? What happened? John MacArthur, in his profound book, he wrote several years ago called The Tale of Two Sons, provides a shocking ending to this story that most people have never thought of or heard before. And he bases it on the wider context in which we find this story. And he suggests this as the ending. If there was a verse 33. Upon hearing this, the older son picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees and scribes eventually did to Jesus? They took Jesus and they killed him on a cross and they said, let his blood be on our hands. And so this story ends at the cross. And it's through Jesus' shameful, scandalous death on the cross that sinners like us can be forgiven for our sin. And it says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And it was not just the joy that he would experience of being exalted to the right hand of the Father and having his glory restored, but having his bride with him. And all of those prodigals who had repented and believed in him, he would have his bride with him for all eternity. Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to come out from under a heavy text in the Old Testament as we've been looking at Lamentations for the last month or two to breathe the fresh air of the gospel in the New Testament and to be refreshed by the life of Christ and um, just to be reminded of the gospel. And so we're grateful for this good news of salvation in Christ. I pray that there's any prodigal son or critical son in here this morning, that today would be the day of their salvation and that there would be rejoicing in heaven today because of someone who repents. As a result of hearing this story, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.